this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. My next guest, Brandon Neth, sold a cannabis distribution company, our first weed dealer on the show. And uh, it was a great interview. I really enjoyed learning about the industry, which I don't know a ton about, but it was fascinating. What I really want you to take away from hearing this story is the way Brandon talks about what was the value in his company, which was none of the things that are traditionally thought of as value drivers. In his case, it was the license to create or, or, or essentially manufacture or grow cannabis. It was that license that the buyer wanted. And I just want you to ask yourself, what is the equivalent of the license in my company? Do we have an equivalent? Um, you know, taxi drivers in New York have the medallion, which of course has gone down in value, but that was what was valuable about those businesses. And so I just want you to listen to Brandon's story and think about in your own business, do you have the equivalent of a license which somebody else would find value. It could, it could be a hidden driver of value in your business. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Brandon Neff. Brandon Neff, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. You are my first drug dealer. Well, legal drug dealer, but uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I like to break barriers. I'm uh, hopefully your first and not your last because you know this is becoming a business. You're in Canada, right? Absolutely, we got a lot of weed dealers up here, man. Yeah. No, it's um, I'm joking. Uh, you had a uh, marijuana uh, retail uh, recreational marijuana business, uh, Northwest Cannabis Specialists. Tell me a little bit about the company. How did you get into this? So I've got I've had this really untraditional path to, uh, you know, becoming a business owner. Long story short, got out of college in 2006, worked for two years. The economy kind of went belly up. My wife and I decided to move overseas and we lived overseas and saved a bunch of money, got completely debt free and came back to the U.S., you know, years later. And um, there was actually medical cannabis was legal in Washington state and my wife's mom had cancer. So her and my wife's father had started growing it a little bit. And we kind of said, hey, you know, there's an opportunity here. There's a lot of people that are in this that are making money. So we dipped our toe in it a little bit and did pretty well. And that, you know, we did that for about a year and a half. And then they decided to legalize it recreationally here in Washington. So we got into recreational cannabis. We were the third person in the state to submit our um, application for a license. Wow. We were a producer processor, which for those out there, that just means we grew it, we trimmed it, we sent it out to the uh, to the storefronts. 
one of the biggest problems that I'll get into, but I want to you know make it up clear up front is we did not have a storefront, and the reason for that is they did not allow vertical integration here in the in Washington State. So you couldn't vertical be a grower. integration. You can't grow it and sell it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um, which presents a, a problem um, that we can get into later on. But either way, we did that. We were a producer processor. Um, we were licensed the very first year it was um, legalized here, and uh, we did it for almost four full years. And so to get the business model right, you grew it and then sold it through to retail uh, stores. Uh, yeah, there was a variation. So either the retail stores or another processor. So there's three levels. And a processor is essentially somebody that, you know, they either trim it or they turn it into edible form or, uh, you know, drinkable form or something of that sort. They turn it into a finished product. So we could only sell it to other processors or to a storefront. We could not sell it to customers. We could not move it over state lines, could not move it over international lines, obviously. So uh, that limited our market pretty um, pretty heavily and was one of the reasons we actually chose to sell the business. Hmm. I want to get more into that in a second. How, out of my own curiosity, so how do you... Uh, like, how do you grow weed? Is this like in a, in a, in, he says like, he's never, no, how do, how do you grow it? Like in a, like, is it in a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like in the winter time, it's a greenhouse or do, yeah. do it in a greenhouse or how do you actually grow this yeah. stuff? So it, it varies, you know, there's essentially three ways that people grow it. Now, you know, you call it indoor, which is people that have a big indoor facility. Um, the way it's formed here in Washington state is people have taken over warehouses, put in lights, they control everything from the food the plants get to how warm it is, how much humidity is in the room, all these kind of factors. Uh, in, it's tends to put out, in a lot of people's opinion, the most high quality cannabis. The problem with it is the overhead is insane. Mm. Second opportunity is the greenhouse, like you mentioned, which is kind of a hybrid. Um, so you get some of that control, like I just mentioned, but it's a little bit um, more cost efficient. And then the third option is outdoor. So you essentially put the plant in the ground, like you, you know, like you put a tomato plant in. And obviously you have to, you know, manicure it and do all these different things. You have to give it its proper nutrients, things like that. So there, these are the primarily the three different models. What we chose to go with was an outdoor slash greenhouse hybrid method. Um, so. The, the great thing about outdoors is really inexpensive to grow. Um, you can produce massive quantity for, you know, your actual dollar per pound is really low. And then, you know, we had the greenhouse, which kind of, like I said, did this hybrid model. So we had a higher quality product. Um, and we thought that was the perfect model. You know, we had done the numbers. We had done, you know, everything you could do, all the research. Problem is, there's not that much out there to actually do the research on. But that was the way we chose to do it. And then we... Uh, trimmed we took the actual finished product um, sometimes we turned it into actual flour so when i say flour you know the actual you know the weed that you put in your pipe and you smoke or the concentrate you know like the oils and the things that people use to make edibles so um, we did all that and we primarily again we chose the method we chose because it was the most cost efficient because the startup and the regulation around everything else was just insanity so you talk about regulation does did the government regulate in Washington, how much you could sell the product for? So no, um, they they the state knows exactly what they're doing. So they came in and when the when the law was written, essentially what they did is instead of regulating the sale of the actual sale price, what they did is they regulated the number of stores that got a license. So they regulated all of us. So there was X number of producer processor licenses um, issued and X number of storefronts issued. 
Here's what happens, though. The storefronts, they only issued something like 500. I don't know the exact number now because there, again, it goes further into this regulation. But essentially, there are there were so few storefronts issued. It cut the medical market when there was medical. There was thousands of stores in the state and there was still a thriving black market. So there was so much demand here that even having thousands of stores didn't meet it. They went recreational and they made it, like I said, about 500 stores. So they created this essentially a monopoly, a massive bottleneck at the top. So you have a couple thousand producer processors like myself that are growing literally thousands of pounds of cannabis a year. And I've only got 500 outlets to sell it to. And what that did, obviously, it, it drove down prices. You walk into a storefront and you hit, say, hey, I've got this product. I'd like to sell it to you for you know, $2,000. And they laugh you out of the store and say, I'll give you this. You know, I'll give you $100 for it. Take it or leave it. Because you can't go up the store, there's no there's no competition. You know, there's no supply and demand. It's it's it really has created um, a black eye for the Washington State market. Over over supply of the product and a finite number of people you could sell it to legally. Exactly. Um, so did this change? It, was this uh, w- like when you started the business? Was was this the same situation as as what you ultimately found yourself in? No, no. So when we, it was actually the other way around. So when you first started, there was so few people, look, you're dealing with, you're dealing with stoners at the end of the day, right? There's very few of us in this, in this industry that are, you know, business people. You know, I was one of the few people that actually had a degree in business, at least at first. So you got all these stoners that, you know, I'm going to get rich, man. And they just did not get their stuff together in time. So us having our product as one of the first ones in the state, we could go to the storefront at first and the stores were paying anything you'd ask for it at first. You know, there were people I knew that were getting like $7,000 a pound, which for reference, um, when it was the medical market in Washington state, you know, a pound of cannabis was roughly $2,000. So coming into this, people are going, oh my gosh, I'm going to get rich overnight. Mm-hmm. And what did it go down to at the worst? And it's continuing to go down right now. So um, we just wholesaled out. Um, I think it was about 300 pounds that we just got the end of the season, 300 pounds that we let go. And it was about $250 a pound and understand at $250 a pound, you have overhead that you're required. So you have a tracking system from the state. That's a thousand dollars a month. You have insurance. that's no less than $1,500 a month. You obviously have overhead for employees, nutrients, all, you know, rent, all these other things that go into it, but you've got so many of these things that the state requires you to have. It almost makes it so you can't survive. And I was going to say, so you got this business up to just north of a million dollars in annual sales, right? I think. Yeah. Yeah. 1.1. Yeah. We got it. We did. We were doing pretty well at one point. Yeah. And so what would the margin be on like the net margin uh, before tax on 1.1 be just ballpark? Um, 20% roughly. Okay. So you're, you're netting 20% on what that, that, that doesn't sound too bad to me. Yeah. But the problem is, is, you know, $200,000, you said before taxes, we are taxed essentially at 75% because in the, in the States, we have a 280E, which essentially allows you to write off a significant portion of your taxes. Um, You know, if you've got operating expenses, because cannabis is federally illegal, we can't write off on 280E. So essentially 75% of that 200, you know, let's say it's $200,000, whatever that number is, is going to taxes and uh, the government. And, you know, then we've got, there's essentially four partners here. So, you know, coming down to $50,000 a year for four people, it's, that's no, there's no money there. You know, you're making $20,000 a year max. 
you have one crop that goes wrong, you have one employee stealing, you have one violation with the state, you have violation of the state means if you're not tracking correctly, $5,000 fine, boom. You know, so one thing goes wrong, your profitability is over for the year. So when you say a 20% profit margin, this is before any of the partners make any salary out of the deal. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Got that's, it. yeah, it's, it's, it, it got really tough. And like I said, that's the last couple of years. The first year we did well, but that's what the markets turned into. So what made you decide to sell? Um, it came down to frustration, um, both with the people in the industry, as well as the industry itself. Um, you know, the regulation, we got to the point where we were trying to be so ethical and treat this like a business. You know, my wife and I and her parents, we are the ones that started this. We are going out and treat this like anybody would treat a regular business. And we were continually, you know, for lack of a better word, screwed over. People were taking advantage of us. They weren't, you know, they're bouncing checks on us, things like that, just over and over and over. And everybody had an excuse. And I get that that's business, but it was so rampant. It just was every single day. And then you couple that with, you know, the state change in the laws. I mean, every week there's a new law or a new amendment to the law. It is so upsetting. And then we didn't have any money, got no money coming in. So the one saving grace in all this was, you know, even though I complained about it at first, was essentially because they limited the number of licenses that were ever going to be issued, we essentially had like a New York taxi medallion, right? Interesting, yeah. So it made the actual license itself worth something, even though the business isn't necessarily worth something. So even though I'm complaining about it, that was my out. It allowed me to have profitability and sell my business because the license was worth something, even though the business isn't. So oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. But why, people, why, why would anyone want to get in the business? Like why did your acquire place any value on the medallion so the the license when all their profits were going to be taxed away exactly where i was going so the the great thing about this is when it first came out you were limited to three licenses so you could essentially own three now they've lifted that requirement and you can own as many as you want um so people are coming in like the people that bought us they're buying everybody out. So where I was at, there was essentially 40 different grow sites on this massive, you know, it's a compound. It's the easiest way to say it. And there was 40 grows. These people are buying all 40 of us out. And then that is one plot. And they're essentially buying that plot times 10 around the states. So they're going to, you know, buy roughly 400 of these licenses. And I think what they're trying to do um, is they're going to flip this market on its head. So they're going to go back to the stores and say, hey, look, now we have the control. You don't have a supply unless you go through us. So they are putting the money up front buying all these licenses out, producing all this product, and they're going to go to the store and say, now you've only got five suppliers instead of 5,000. You have to deal with us. You're going to have to pay X amount. At what point did you realize this was the game that they were buying all of you up? Pretty much as soon as I got, as soon as I spoke with them, because the person that bought us, they're actually, they're just one of the people that are out there with us doing the daily grind, right? So I knew the buyer. Um, I knew I knew the company. Uh, they have some big, big backers behind them. Actually, they got a couple Canadians um, that are backing them. And I just kind of figured it out. It didn't take rocket science when I started talking to every other grower there on site. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, Paradise came up and offered to buy us out. And, you know, so I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but that doesn't take a whole lot of brain power to figure it out. And I don't blame them. You know what I mean? Like a lot of us, so many of us were looking for an exit because we were so fed up. So having somebody walk in, you know, be able to essentially cash you out straight away. And it was, it's also a nice peace of mind to say, hey, I'm really happy to see that the storefronts are going to have their own, you know, tactics used against them. And for somebody that I know and like, you know, the, the people that are buying me out, I'm friends with them. Before we get too far into the deal, I'm curious to know, 
did you make any attempts to brand your product as being different than any of the other licensees? Yeah, we we did. So again, like I said, we came for the medical market, the medical marijuana market, and we had something that was really unique. We had something they call clear or distillate, which is a really high concentrate um, oil. You know, essentially when I say oil, you know, it's a smokable uh, oil, you know, high 90% THC or CBD, you know, is really, 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 really good quality product. And we went out to the storefronts. We were one of the first ones to have this in the area. And um, the problem with the cannabis market is you can't trademark, you you can't get a patent on anything. So pretty much as soon as you launch it, somebody else does it. You can only market so much. You, I'm not allowed to have a website. I'm not allowed to have billboards. I'm not allowed to, uh, you know, even put a sign out that says, hey, this cannabis is located here. Come, come take a look at it. There's such regulation. I essentially, all I can do is call up storefronts and talk to them. So what this has done, again, like this monopoly to even make it more and more difficult is when they issued these licenses, when they issued the storefront licenses for the people that went recreational, they issued them as a lottery. It wasn't on your merit. It wasn't on anything else. It was literally a lottery system. So, so many of these people that got these storefronts had never run a business. So a lot of the growers had. So these people partnered. They had backdoor deals. They partnered and said, all right, I'll be your exclusive supplier. And they've done really, really well. And because of that, it has really, really just, again, made this so difficult to compete. So it doesn't matter if you did really good at marketing or you had a unique product. So many of these guys had backdoor deals. You were just kind of handcuffed. So at what point did you did you accelerate plans to 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 sell the business? Did, did you actually start a conversation with the guys from Paradise or what was that? Tell me how that went down. So all of us sat down one weekend. Um, the four all the partners. People- well, the four partners, but um, the four partners, and I should say everybody kind of at the grow site. So like I said, there's roughly, I think there was like 36 different grow sites um, out on the land I was on. And all of us sat down and said, you know, we're all taking a beating. What's what's happening here? Maybe we should come together. And it was because at, at one point I kind of thought maybe this is us. Maybe we're doing something wrong, right? Like maybe I need to sit back and I need to analyze this. And I had done it over and over again. I had brought some friends in. I had brought some consultants in. Nothing was working. And everybody has kind of got to the point where there's no money, something needs to change. And that was kind of the light bulb moment where everybody said, you know what, the only way to do this, the only way to compete is to consolidate. And that's when uh, everybody kind of looked at Paradise Marijuana or Paradise MJ. And uh, they were the big player. They had the most money behind them. And their kind of their eyes lit up and the wheels started turning and things started happening a few months later. So where did it go from there? So you have this meeting amongst the growers. Did you all agree to to terms with Paradise or like how did they do each deal with you uniquely in one like one off fashion? Yeah, it was a one off thing because different people had different, you know, for example, di- different strains of plants. They had different grow houses. They had different facilities. You know, some people brought in really expensive machinery. So everybody was an individual thing. So Again, I'm friends with most of these people, so I know the basics of their deal, but there are a lot of NDAs. Um, there are a lot of state regulations. So a lot of us won't even be able to say, you know, I sold my my company for this much money. We just know that it was sold and likely, you know, these people over here got more money than us. These people over here got less money than us. And uh, that's just the way it works. There's no way around it. Um, What's your understanding of how, how a, a cannabis supplier would be valued? Like, how would you typically expect the companies to be valued? 
Um, it, it's not your traditional, like my sales are X and you know, you got a two X or three X multiplier or something like that. It's not like that. It just kind of comes down to, this is what the, the licenses in the state are selling for, take it or leave it. Because the other part of this, again, goes to this regulation is in order to buy a license, you need to live in the state of Washington. You can have outside investors, but you need somebody in here. So there's a lot of people that are coming in saying, oh, I'll buy this license. You know, you got big money coming, you know, from New York or Florida or whatever, but they don't have the ability. So they have to partner with somebody. And those people are so well aware of the market. It just comes down to, hey, I can go buy a license up the road for 125000 or 500000 or whatever that number is. Take it or leave it. So we really didn't have much room to negotiate. And so it didn't come down to your sales, your profit margins, your happy employees or any of that. It was literally they were buying the license. Exactly. They were buying the license. Um, We did have a little bit of negotiation power because we had um, a pretty nice infrastructure. So we had some really nice greenhouses. We had some really nice cameras, irrigation, things like that. But outside of that, they just came down to this is what they're selling for, take it or leave it. So Brandon, was it a share sale or an asset sale? Did they buy the assets of the company or the the shares? Great question. Um, it started out as a share com- uh, as a share sale, and then they changed it over to asset just essentially to alleviate themselves of um, liabilities and some other things. Um, that was actually one of the big hiccups, one of the big problems we had is we had had all the paperwork signed, we had agreed to it, and the attorney on the other side said, hey, we are going to change all this over to asset um, because it makes a lot more sense. So it ended up coming, it ended up finishing out as an asset purchase. And how did, how does that impact you personally? Um, for us personally, it actually allows us to, um, put the money that we get because there's actually no product sold. There's no cannabis sold. So we're actually allowed to take the money we get, put it in the bank, um, not have to worry about any sort of, you know, federal, um, you know, kickback, you know, we don't have to worry about, you know, DEA kicking our door in and saying, Hey, you guys are going to prison. So that was really good for us from that perspective. And our understanding is, um, I don't, I'm not pretending I'm an attorney. I'm not pretending I'm a CPA, but our text, our tax person and our attorney said, well, it's actually going to be better for us from a tax perspective as well. Um, it will reduce the amount that we owe at year end. And so you did an asset sale. Did, did you look for other buyers at all? Was there, was there an attempt to get someone to compete at all with Paradise's offer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I spent about four months doing it. Um, we had a couple higher offers. And of course, those people fell through for one reason or another. We had people that were offering less that were able to close faster and they fell through. Um, for one reason or another, I don't know if it's business in general or again, this industry, but people have the biggest plans and they talk, 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 but when it comes down to actually doing it, nobody fall, followed through. Um, it was just, it was a nightmare. You know, I got, I probably spent $10,000 on attorneys, you know, getting paperwork and get everything drawn up for these different deals. And they all fell through. It was really frustrating. Where did you, how did you get paradise to commit? What was, how did, how did that, cause that six, that was successful. I understand to, to close. Yeah. Um, but what it, it really came down to is me writing them every day. You know, are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? Is going to get done. The one kind of playing card we had is part of the agreement was that, they were going to take over the grow operation for this previous year because essentially this crop's going to be theirs. They've already purchased the license, but we're waiting on the state, the final state, um, kind of give it to give you the okay. And so they were growing and that if they were going to get their plants in the ground to be able to grow them per the law, they had to be on our contract. They had to be on our license. So, um, it was kind of nice that we were able to push them through. Hey, if you guys want to 
essentially grow this crop, which is going to give you close to enough money to buy our license this year, get it done, get it going. And that was what finally put them over the edge. And it's not that I think they were necessarily dragging their feet. It's just that they were essentially doing, you know, 40 of these deals at once. And, uh, you know, it's a lot to navigate. How much did you end up selling the company for? So again, because of NDAs and the, and the state requirements and that, I can't give you an exact amount, but I can tell you it's just under, you know, it was under a million dollars. Um, so again, after all of our startup costs, after, you know, a couple years of actually losing money, you know, we had a losing year, um, all these things, we did come out with a bit of a profit. So, um, I think it was worth it. I'm happy I did it. I built, you know, I built my first business and sold it. Um, and what I learned is invaluable. So I think, uh, the, the sale price is pretty fair. When we come down to the actual sale itself, um, regardless of the industry and all of its sort of complexity, but when you think about the actual sale, is there a key lesson that that would be transferable to other industries that that you might share about the the acquisition? Yeah, you got to have patience. I do not care what you can be the most detail oriented, you know, you can dot your I's, cross your T's, do everything right. There's going to be a hiccup. There's going to be a problem. I don't care how good you are at things. It's not Shark Tank. You don't walk in, pitch your deal. Mark Cuban doesn't write you a million dollar check and you walk out. That's not how this works. You need to have, <laughs> you need to have patience. You need to understand um, it's not just going to happen overnight. What and was the hiccup for you guys? Which one? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> yeah. But, what was the biggest hiccup uh, in, you know, during the diligence phase that, that, that almost kind of put the deal at risk? Um, honestly, I would think, I think it was probably when we did the transition from, you know, when we changed it to an asset purchase, um, we, at first it really scared us. We had to go back to our attorney and say, Hey, you know, what is this? Can you explain the pros and the cons? And, you know, there were definitely some things we didn't like about it at first, but after we got through those hurdles, um, that was it. So like completely changing the contract was a big one. The other one I would say, um, it's specific to cannabis was the state regulation, just having to submit paperwork, you know, going through the business licensing and going through the state department, going through secretary of the state. And there's just so many levels of bureaucracy. Hmm. Yeah. I know people are listening <laughs> to this going, I thought I had red tape to deal with. These guys yeah. sound like that's nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all relative, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, I appreciate you sharing the story with us. What, what do you, uh, what are you going to do now? Can people reach out to you in some way? Is there a, a way for people to say hi if they wanted to reach out? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, like I mentioned earlier, I kind of jumped onto a startup. Um, it's a company called financebuzz.com. And uh, I work remotely. I'm in Portland. They're in Florida. Um, you know, finance and like travel, credit card points and miles is my thing. And I kind of ran into them in the process of me selling my business. Um, actually, Christine, hopefully she's listening. She's the one that put me on to the podcast here and told me to jump on here and talk to you. So, uh, you know, she brought me on. I'm working with them now. Um, it's really nice because I kind of get to do all aspects of the business. Business, um, just like starting my own company, but essentially the financial burdens on somebody else, which is awesome. Good for me. I, and I'm, I'm continually learning. And then, um, you know, like I said, my thing has always been travel. So I'm traveling all the time. I'm getting to talk to people about it and teach them how to do it for less. So uh, I moved from one passion, cannabis, into another, which is travel. So uh, I've been super lucky. And then, you know, finding me online, you know, we run a really engaged Facebook group. It's called FBZ Elite Travel and Points. You know, there's 12,000 people in there every day. We're talking about trips and where people go and how to use credit cards to go for less. So that's kind of what I do now. And I'm, I couldn't be happier. Awesome, Brennan. Say the name of the Facebook group again. It's FBZ Elite Travel and Points. It's uh, just Finance Buzz's company, uh, Finance awesome. Buzz's Facebook group, sorry. 
Brandon Neth, thanks for joining us. You know what, John, thank you so much. Um, I'm really glad that you gave me a um, avenue to speak out. I know it sounds like I was really frustrated, but uh, regardless, if there's people out there listening, even if it's going to be a headache and you hear all these hurdles and all these problems, do it. Start your business. There's nothing, nothing in the world that can replace it and that experience, period. Well said, my friend. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.